I love, love, love. Uh, it, it feels very appropriate uh, that it was a child named Miracle uh, to read from Micah chapter 5 for us this morning about uh, peace. Um, I am going to be uh, jumping around a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, typically, we love to uh, take a passage and stick to that, um, but uh, it'll be a little bit different this morning. Uh, but before we get into that, as I was thinking about our subject matter, uh, there was a great cinematic masterpiece that kept coming to mind. I would have to say world peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for a parole violator, Stan. And world peace. Yes, of course, that was Sandra Bullock giving an Oscar-worthy performance in the great 2000 classic, Miss Congeniality. And sometimes when we think about the idea of peace, we think about this in these same kind of maybe platitudes that often uh, mark our public discourse. Sometimes we think about peace only as it pertains to war or global conflict. But this morning, there is an idea that I want um, to get across of, of peace being so much more. And the main thing that I want to get across this morning is that Jesus coming means we can have peace with God. Jesus coming means that we can have peace with God. What I want to do is look at a whole bunch of passages of Scripture that kind of set the stage for what we are talking about this Advent season with Jesus coming and what that means for us and what the idea of peace found within Scripture really means and maybe what it has to do with us today. And first, I want to say what peace isn't. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. When we think about peace, or even the way that some of the pageant contestants would say, world peace, we think of this in terms of everyone putting down their guns and tanks and weapons, and let's just not have fighting anymore. And I, I have to confess, I think that as I look around, and it, you know, just thinking through it, and, and as I was jotting things down, it was like, man, there is so much more conflict, armed conflict with weapons and casualties around the world sometimes than we can remember. But I think of, what if Israel and Gaza just put down their weapons completely and there was no more fighting? What if Russia and Ukraine ceased their conflict and Russia stopped their invasion and they went back and there was no more fighting? What if the Yemeni civil war just went away because we all put down our weapons and there was no more fighting or deaths? Or the civil war in Sudan? Or the Ethiopian government with the TPLF in the northern part of the country? Or any number of other conflicts around the world? Then would we have world peace? Would we achieve real, true, lasting 
peace, the kind that we see in Scripture, the kind that God promises? I would argue no, because there is still in that something missing. And that is sort of the point. What I want to look at is from the earliest time that peace as an idea, as an entity is introduced in Scripture, it is that peace is about making things whole, complete, and right again. If you have a copy of Scripture in front of you, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 21, and I want to kind of look at and reflect on the last couple of verses from Exodus 21 and into the first several verses of of chapter 22. Exodus 21, starting in verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. They shall share. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. No, I'm not going to read the whole passage. Some of you are going, is he going to read this whole thing from the Levitical law? You know. Yes, of course, as we ruminate on that classic Christmas passage from Exodus chapter 22. You guys are going, what is he talking about? Well, jump, let your eyes kind of wander over the next 15 verses in Exodus chapter 22. And you'll see this same phrase repeated. Whenever something happens socially, whenever there is conflict, whenever someone wrongs someone else, whether by property or your animal or husbands and wives or whatever, we have to make restoration. Or maybe your Bible uses the word restitution. Sometimes it, it might say compensation. If you have an older uh, translation of scripture, maybe the King James Version or the ASV or something like that, it might even say, make it good. And it's interesting because the word that is used here is a Hebrew word with which I think many of us are already familiar. It is the word shalom. It is peace. It is this idea of what biblical peace really is found even in the sort of social covenant among the people, among the municipal codes, if you will, of the children of Israel wandering in the desert are these rules, these statutes that say, look, when something happens, you're meant to make it right. You're meant to make restoration. Peace is about making things whole, complete, and right again. And this idea of shalom, even early on in scripture, is presented to the people. But there's something interesting that happens whenever maybe we wrong one another. And you can, you know, I, I don't know how many of your oxen gored somebody else's oxen this week, or you didn't have a pit that was properly covered, or whatever, I don't know. But if your Honda gores another man's Mercedes, you ought to make, you know, you can fill in the blanks. We forgot to cover the pool and someone fell in. Okay, it's the same thing. 
But let's say if I got super irritated with you and I was very mad and I went out into the parking lot and I slashed all four of your brand new, just put on winter tires, and then later I came to my senses and I said, that wasn't right, I'll pay for the tires, and I even spent time and I put them on again, everything's good, right? Maybe. <laughs> or maybe, if you have a shred of common sense, you will eye me with a little bit more suspicion. You might not trust me quite as much because I have done this thing that harmed you. And that is at the heart of all of the laws that govern the people of Israel, even before they entered the promised land. It was, listen, other human beings bear the image of God. And when we do things to each other, it's sort of like vandalism. It, it kind of mars the image of God in somebody else. And even after we have made restitution, our relationship has been harmed. And in fact, that's why, as you read on, and especially into Leviticus, it, it prescribes the necessity of these offerings, including a guilt offering or a sin offering or even a peace offering. Because we have harmed God. We have hurt the image of God. I have vandalized this person who bears God's image. And so peace still needs to be made. And in fact, there even still is something that's, that's kind of missing in our relationships that are hurt and broken. There is still an additional wholeness, restitution, restoration that needs to happen. That is the biblical concept of peace. That is shalom. There is this idea that peace is about wholeness. It is so holistic. In fact, quite often in Scripture, the same word is used to inquire about someone's general health, about someone's general well-being, about how you're doing, how's your household, how's your work. It's one of the most common greetings in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Almost every epistle begins with this kind of grace and peace to you. And it's the same Greek word that shalom is translated to in the Septuagint that the New Testament authors use. Even today, if you study Semitic languages, Hebrew, Arabic, uh, Amharic, Malti, etc., most often the way that you greet someone is by wishing them peace. I was in Ethiopia, and the way that you greet someone in Amharic or Tigrinya is salam or salamno. And in Arabic, it is the same thing, assalamu alaikum. And in the same way, in, in, in Hebrew, you greet one another by saying shalom, peace. And it's a way of, of inquiring about someone's sort of overall holistic well-being. Peace also brings this idea of order. Peace has to do with things being sort of organized, lined up, expected, I, listen, I have four young boys. My house is chaos constantly, okay? I, I was telling someone this morning, our old home in Nebraska had 12-foot ceilings, and there were raspberry stains on the ceilings, okay? That's what my house is like. I crave order. I crave systematic, like, can't we just do things by the book? Can't you just listen to me? And there is something in us that craves this idea of things being made right. 
that, that longs for God to put everything in its proper place. In fact, peace is set up as this sort of uh, antonym to chaos. Read in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, Paul says this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's saying, listen, there is order in the character of God. This is what God is bringing to the world, a sense of order and things being right and expected and peaceful. That is this idea of peace. And sometimes when we think about this idea of order or of restitution or of things being made right, we might ask ourselves, well, who does that? Who is responsible for things being organized and made right and sort of in order in society? Well, in theory, we have a government that keeps everything in order. In, in the West, in, in liberal democracies, we take part in our government. We elect officials who act on our behalf. We have a certain amount of political efficacy, uh, F, F, uh, you know, power. Um, <laughs> We, we have an ability to make redress and complain to our elected officials and petition the government on our behalf and all of these things. And in theory, we are supposed to have an ordered and organized society. Some of you are smirking. That's okay. That's all right. Listen, I am not a Canadian, so I know I do not have a platform to stand on. But from my perspective as an American... If you in the United States would tell any random sample of people, don't worry, the government is coming and they will make everything better, you would get, yes, you would get derisive laughter. You would get snickers. You would get, okay, sure, right. And sometimes we crave for there to be some kind of human institution that will bring about this rightness, this wholeness, this completeness, this restoration, this justice. And it maybe falls short. Oddly enough, there is only two places in all of Scripture where the word government is used. In any language, government is only used twice in the whole of the Bible in two consecutive verses. And in fact, we read them last week. And they're very common around this time of year. Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The very next verse, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And there is this sense of, as human beings, we crave justice and righteousness and order and completion and restoration and things to be set right. But we look around and there's a severe lack of that often. We crave this. And that is the promise of the Messiah. I want to spend a lot of time here in the book of Isaiah this morning um, and even, you know, as, as I'm talking about and thinking about uh, the way we study through books, 
Um, and uh, I was soliciting some feedback about Hebrews, and, and certainly if anybody else has, I'd, I would love to hear any thoughts or feedback, ideas that you have, but uh, there are times when I think, man, I'm just flying through this book. We are just, oh, we're going light speed, and I'd love to spend a little more time digging in. But at the same time, you go, okay, 13 weeks, ah, oh, we're trudging through this. And then I look at a book like Isaiah, and I say, there's no way we're going to spend 66 weeks going through the book of Isaiah. You know, it's just not practical. And yet, Isaiah is a wonderful and rich book, and I commend it to you all to read, especially this time of year. And what I want to do this morning is take just a brief, very brief, far too brief look at the book of Isaiah, because I think it is particularly prescient this time of year. Isaiah ministered at a time in the southern kingdom of Judah when the northern kingdom of Israel was under attack from Assyria. They were in the process of being invaded, captured, carried off into exile. In, and there was a, a sort of uh, ethnic cleansing of the Jew, where the Assyrian mindset was to come in and just intermarry and dilute the sort of bloodline of the people so that they were all Assyrians, okay? And that's where hundreds of years later uh, in Israel you have Samaritans that the Jews don't really care for because they don't, they don't think of them as purely ethnic Jews and there's animosity there. And all of this is going on with the southern neighbors, the kingdom of Judah, next door going, are we next? Are, are we also going to fall prey to this invading empire? And Isaiah, along with others, Micah, that we, we read a little bit this morning from, they prophesied during this time. And when we think about Isaiah in particular, Isaiah is known as this sort of fire and brimstone, this doom and gloom prophet. He talks a lot about God's judgment. He talks a lot about the anger and the wrath of the Lord being poured out. And we can get this mindset of Isaiah saying to people, yes, even though not Assyria, there's another big bad empire that's coming and they're going to wipe you out because you haven't followed the Lord. And that's only half the story. Because all throughout Isaiah, there is peppered in a constant refrain of hope. Of Isaiah saying to the people, yes, you're going to experience exile. Yes, you're going to experience God's judgment. Yes, you're going to experience wrath and a whole lot of really awful and difficult and hard to swallow things in your life. But there is still hope. And Isaiah prophesies a bunch about this coming Messiah a chosen one, an anointed one that God himself is going to send to set everything right, to bring about restoration and order and righteousness and peace. Let me give you just a sampling from Isaiah 2. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Man, wouldn't that be great? Jumping to chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth 
in the wilderness, streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Are you getting the picture in his head? All of these bad things, all of these troubled times, they're going to be no more. There is coming a day when God himself will come and make everything right and bring order and restoration and, in a word, peace. I want to commend this week to you, especially Isaiah chapters 54 and 55. 54 starts like this, Sing, O barren one, who didn't bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. You who long for children, guess what? There's a day coming when God's going to bless you. It uses this picture of a barren woman longing for children and for her to be satisfied. Or even the next chapter. This is like the, oh, sorry, this is still in 54. This is like the days of Noah to me as I swore on the waters of Noah should be no more and go over the earth so that I have sworn I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you for the mountains may depart and the hill be removed but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. And jumping into the next chapter, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Are you hungry? Are you poor? Are you longing for something? Come and take in abundance. This is the picture Isaiah is painting of a Messiah who is going to come and restore God's creation and make everything right. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound. All of this is painting a picture of a promised Messiah, of saying someday God himself is going to come and make everything right. And that's who we find in Jesus, this long-promised Messiah. Jesus coming means we can have peace with God. And when Jesus quietly slips into the world that night in Bethlehem, that is the coming of the Messiah. That is the fulfillment of these for centuries promised prophecy about God himself entering our midst and making things right. And in fact, the way that this is heralded by the angels that night to a bunch of poor shepherds in the countryside is glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
That's what Jesus coming means. All of this longing, all of the ways that we look around the world and we say there's something missing and I just feel empty and disappointed and like it's not quite there yet. Jesus comes in and he says, that's what I am here for. Jesus coming means we can have peace with God. And in fact, I want you to consider this phrase maybe that you've heard before. I can now die happy. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Something that happens to somebody or they realize a lifelong ambition, not, not that they want to die or they're ready to die, but, but to say, that's it, I've seen it all. I'm, when I go, I'll be happy because this has been fulfilled. Well, someone in Scripture basically says this verbatim. After Jesus is born... He's taken to the temple on the eighth day to be dedicated to the Lord because Mary and Joseph are good Jews and they are following the law and they want to present this child to the Lord. And as they come into the temple, there is this old man who is there who has been promised by God that he would not see death until he got to meet God's promised Messiah. And what does he do as soon as he sees Jesus coming through? He takes the baby up in his arms. And by the way, we have some newborns. There are some coming again. I don't recommend doing this. Please ask first, okay? Simeon is not a great example in this area, all right? PSA over, all right? But Simeon takes the baby up in his arms, and this is what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared and the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I can now die happy because I have seen God's promise of a Messiah, of someone who has come to make everything right, to restore and redeem and bring order and justice. He's done it. And I can now depart in peace, he says. Complete, whole. You know, it's interesting, though. This is happening at a time when it was definitely longed for, where there was definitely a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of longing for completion, wholeness, restoration. Jesus was born at a time and into a world where there was a lot of uncertainty, where there was rampant poverty. You know, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds that heard these angels proclaim glory in the highest They lived in a a time where they had this constant upheaval and uncertainty, where they've had just recently hundreds of years of empire after empire coming and taking over. And even after the Babylonians, it was the Persians, and after the Persians, it was the Greeks. After the Greeks, you've got the Maccabees, and then the Hasmoneans, and then the Herodian dynasty, and even that is sort of taken over by Rome. And by, by the time that Jesus comes, They're living in a Roman-occupied place. In fact, Herod, this, this Judean king, is called a client king of Rome. And the taxes on the people were incredibly high, 50 to 60%. 
And if you think of high taxes in a good, well-functioning society, those things all go for the betterment of society, to care for the least among us, for the poor, for those down on their luck, for those that need a hand up, or to care for our infrastructure, to bring order and restoration to our society. That's not what's happening at the time. That tax money is going to faraway rulers just to make them richer. And you can imagine the people there craving this peace, craving this justice, this order, this restoration for a God who has long promised that he would come and make things whole and complete and right again. And still they feel that. And even with Jesus, there is a sense of still feeling like there is something still yet to come. In fact, even as we sang before, Jesus was a different kind of king than they expected. This line stuck out to me. Jesus, this king from the manger, could have marched into the heart of Rome, but that's not what he did. He ruled in a very different way, and in fact, he gave up his life in service. But rest assured, Jesus is coming again. He is coming And he will make all things right. And in fact, the reason that we can rely on that promise that he is coming again is because he did it once before. He said he would come and he did. For hundreds of years, there was prophecy that the Messiah would come and then he did. And we can have faith and trust in a God who is who he says he is and will do what he promised he would. And that is the peace that the Messiah brought Jesus that night in Bethlehem and for all of his life. Well, so what? So they had peace. So they experienced this Messiah. So Simeon got to see this baby boy and hold him in his arms and say, thank you, God, you've let me see him. Now I can depart in peace. What does this have to do with us? Well, First, I would argue that Jesus is still our peace. In the New Testament, even after Jesus' ascension, Paul writes this to a church in Ephesus. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Echoing the promise that we read from Micah chapter 5, that God himself will be your peace. Paul is saying to them, That is Jesus. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus coming means we can have peace with God. In all of the ways that we find ourselves longing and wanting justice and order and wholeness and restoration and completion, we can experience that in Jesus. We can experience that as we learn to follow Christ and live the way that he taught his disciples to live. One of the early church fathers in the fourth century, a guy from uh, North Africa named Augustine, said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There is something in us naturally that sort of longs for restoration, for completion, for something better, for something right. 
And we find that, we discover that in the peace that Christ offers to us. Because Jesus' coming means that we can now have and experience that peace with God. But there's another side to that. There's a a strange tension in the Advent season. There is an interesting two-sided, already but not yet nature of Advent. Because, yes, we celebrate the first coming of the Messiah, and we praise God for his promise kept. But Advent also teaches us to look towards his second coming, to long for a day when he will come and return and set everything right, just as he has promised. Because even insofar as we can experience God's peace and we can experience his kingdom here on earth, we still have one foot in this world where our sin mars the image of God in ourselves and in others, where the things that we do bring disorder and chaos and prevent us from being as close to God as he intended us to be. We still find ourselves in hard and fractured relationships. We still find ourselves grieving and mourning and experience loss. We still find ourselves shaking in anger and frustration when injustice exists, and it does exist. And part of experiencing God's peace, especially here at Advent, is it opens our eyes to all of the ways that we have not yet quite perfectly experienced God's peace that he offers. And in fact, um, my favorite author, Lewis, puts it this way in his seminal work, Mere Christianity. He says this, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you find yourself relating maybe to the people to whom Isaiah prophesied? Are you thirsty? Are you poor? Are you restless? Are you barren, disappointed, longing for something? Are you wronged, mistreated, in need of restoration? Are you aching for restitution? Are you pining for a world where God himself will enter our humanity and make everything right? That's good. That is exactly where we ought to be. And though it is painful, that is the feeling that we ought to have. And even in so many of the Christmas songs that we sing, we are meant to have this same emotion, identifying with the people in first century Judea. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All of our great Christmas songs speak of this idea. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Pining away for a world which is better. Jesus' coming means we can have peace with God. But also we are meant to be agents of that peace right now. Even as we look towards a hope of a perfect peace that he will bring someday 
It is our duty as followers of Jesus to be agents of that peace in our lives today. Maybe it means attempting to make whole whenever we see those that are poor or hurting, the marginalized, those that are grieving or have lost loved ones, those, especially this time of year, that have strained or fractured relationships with family. It's on us as followers of Jesus, as the church, as his bride, to be able to say, we want to be Christ's hands and feet and his peace to these people in our lives right now. Or maybe it means practicing restoration and reconciliation in our lives and in our relationships. And I have to tell you, this is easier said than done. And in fact, it is so easy to think about all of the other people that need to take steps to do this thing. As we're thinking about this, we're going, yes, oh, of course, amen. That other person needs to make this thing right. And I have to confess, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that being a preacher of God's word necessarily makes you a hypocrite every now and then. I was reviewing my notes last night and I, I, I was really just struck and felt incredibly convicted. Over four years ago, I was uh, working in my, my first pastoral role, my first uh, local church job at a church in Florida, uh, and I was fired. <laughs> um, and there, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll, you know, <laughs> let's go out to coffee and I'll tell you about it sometime, but you know. But there was a tremendous amount of hurt and pain in that experience. There was a tremendous, like we had three young children at the time. This was something that, that really devastated our family. We felt wronged. We felt that, you know, the, the, uh, the backs were turned on us. This family that we had called ours, people that we thought loved us, and we felt a great deal of hurt in that moment. And for me, it'd be very easy to think, yes, some of those people need to reach out to me. I've been waiting by the phone for three and a half years, four and a half years. But also knowing, look, I cannot control what anybody does but me. And it occurred to me this pastor, who was not well, had a lot of baggage and things going on that was at the heart of a lot of this conflict um, that caused a, a great deal of staff turnover. There were five or six of us that left in the course of several months. I was the only one that got fired, but that's not, or, you know. It is easy to just sort of vilify this person. And it occurs to me, you know what? I, I don't hold any animosity. I don't hold any grudge. I don't have any anger or bitterness towards him. And in fact, as I really stop and think about it, this was probably a hard time for him too. There were probably things that I did, even accidentally. Think about Exodus. Even if you accidentally leave the pit unopened. Even if you accidentally leave your ox in the yard and it gores someone. It's on you to make restitution. And there may have been things that I said or did, even unintentionally, that contributed to hurt. And even insofar as I have made peace with those things inside of me, it's on me to be an agent of that peace and to make restoration where I can. And so late last night, I sent him an email. And I have no idea if he'll respond or not. I'll keep you posted. But I don't know. 
But something in me felt a conviction to say, you know what, even if I felt like I was wronged, like I was the person that was hurt and scarred, like restitution and restoration and wholeness need to be made to me, what can I do? I can say, if ever there was anything that I did to contribute to this, if there was anything that I said or did that hurt or created tension or frustration, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Those were hard words to type. And yet there's peace that comes with it. And I, I want to encourage you. Maybe you do have a fractured relationship with a family member. Maybe this time of year you're dreading something that's coming up. Maybe there is some interaction that you really absolutely would rather just skip to January because you're dreading it that much. Insofar as we have the opportunity to make whole, to make complete, to bring about some sense of peace, let's do our best to do that this holiday season. Let's be agents of peace because Jesus coming means that we can have peace with God. And there is hope for it someday in a wonderful, glorious, splendid, perfect way. And we're not there yet. We're still longing for that. But especially this Advent season, would you take some time and rest in Jesus? Would you take some time and slow down and experience the peace that he is offering? That by his spirit, he is saying, I want to come into your life and I want to make you whole. I want to make things right. I want to bring about perfect justice, and it's coming someday, and I want you to taste it a little bit right now. Jesus' coming means we can have peace with God. God, I thank you so much for the gift of your Son, for everything that it means, not the least of which in meaning that we can experience peace and wholeness and completion. And I pray that we would long for that, that we would preach that in, in the way that we proclaim your good news but also, God, in the way that we practice making things whole and right and complete, all in your name, to shine a light on Jesus. And I pray that we would do that this morning. Amen. Amen.